Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brandon Kraft from FRC. He's a technical services forester. Did I get that right, Brandon? That's right. Awesome. Awesome. So how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Kevin? Oh, not too bad. It's one of those, uh, it's Mondays, I guess. And I, I've actually been on the road. I know you've seen on social and some of my posts. So I think I was in like three different major cities in a span of 48 hours and driving around. So it was like awesome to get out and network and feel alive. I know things are probably different uh, in your neck of the woods. Where are we, where are you calling from? Macon, Georgia. Macon, Georgia. What's the population right in the of Macon, of Georgia? The state of Georgia. How many people live there? Um, oh man, that's, it's embarrassing that I don't have a better answer for you, but I'm pretty sure it's over a hundred thousand. Okay. My so guess would be 120 maybe. Yeah. Decent size and awesome. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So maybe to kick us off, like tell us about FRC, who's forest resource yeah. consultants for those who are not from the U S I guess, our global listeners, maybe give an introduction on who FRC is and what they do. Absolutely. So uh, FRC stands for Forest Resource Consultants. Um, We are one of the top uh, private forestry consultants in the U.S. Um, We manage right around 2 million acres. Um, So it varies in terms of, you know, typically we're kind of top five by acreage. Um, We kind of have a reputation as being like a mostly like Timo and REIT. Um, consultant, but we also do a lot of stuff for small private landowners. Um, We have offices from Georgia all the way over to Texas and yeah, full service forestry consulting firm. Very cool. So I'm going to ask the dumb question, even though I I know the answer, but I'm, I'm channeling. It's kind of funny lately. My sister listens to the podcast and she's like, you don't even introduce half the term. So I'm trying to understand and I'm, I'm trying to follow and learn. I don't get it. So Timo Reed for, for, for my sisters of the world, who are they, what are their function and, and how are you serving them? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I listened to the podcast enough that I've, I've heard the sister example a good bit. So hello, Kevin's sister. Um, yeah. So REITs are real estate investment trust and Timo's uh, it's Timberland investment management organizations those are both just tax advantaged investment strategies for um, owning and aggregating like large amounts of timberland and and giving a return to investors. Uh, for someone non-technical, those two would seem nearly identical. Uh, their main difference is tax strategy and some kind of behind the scenes policy nerd stuff. So. Okay, very, very cool. And I, and I, I often tell a lot of people, at least on the Canadian side, that often in their investment portfolios, they're holding timber, maybe not even realizing, right, uh, per se, it's just fascinating from that, that point. So I always love to ask people, and you've heard this on previous shows, like, how'd you get into forestry, man? Like, is, is there a cool story, a family connection, or, or just went straight into school? Or, or what's that unique, uh, unique thing that got you, got you in yeah. that space? Yeah, I think it's a good story. It was a good story to live anyway. We'll see if it's a good story to tell. (laughs) But um, yeah, so raised in the Southeast, spent all my time playing in the woods, always loved the woods, Um, but also, you know, went to computer camp and read a lot of books and was kind of the, the, you know, nerdy student 
type of type of story as well. So uh, around the time I was in eighth grade, my mom got a job at uh, an ecology lab that was only a few miles from my house. Really great. It's the Jones Center at Itchaway. And they do a lot of like fire ecology, forest ecology work, um, a lot of really good longleaf silviculture, longleaf pine silviculture work came out of there. And uh, that kind of put forestry and ecology on my radar. And, and it was just in the back of my head. Um, had more of an arts emphasis. So when it came time to pick a major for school, I actually, my undergrad is actually humanities. And um, the plan was to get a humanities degree, kind of get like a broad liberal arts education, and then uh, go get an MFA in science and nature writing. And the whole time I was getting that artsy undergrad, I was working at the ecology lab, the John Center at Itchaway, uh, developed a really good friendship. Uh, and then eventually he became a, a really solid early mentor of mine. Uh, Jonathan Stover, who's a wildlife biologist, who's now with the U.S. Forest Service. But uh, one day we were talking about my grad plans and he said, Brandon, he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's kind of a, one of those grumpy old woods worker scientist guys. So he said, Brandon, the last thing this world needs is one more person writing about something in really pretty language that they know nothing about. And so he said that and I kind of took it to heart, you know, and um, over time, he kind of convinced me that I had built up enough of a resume to go back to grad school for forestry and went to Auburn and did a master's that was specific to having a non-forestry undergrad degree. And um, yeah, just kind of went from there. Since then, I've just been chasing complex problems. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess Auburn to be the Auburn Tigers, uh, per se. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's my extent of my college football knowledge there. I mean, that's right. Bam, I was in school. I schooled to pick one or the other. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, those things. So very cool. I'm amazed to hear that story because time and time again, when you talk to people, often there's a person, a significant person mm -hmm. in somebody's life that gives them that nudge, maybe, or maybe that unintentional, that invisible hand, if you will, kind of guiding mm -hmm. you maybe in a direction that maybe you never thought of uh, in the first place. So thinking of you doing your master's at Auburn in that space and not, I don't know if classically trains the right word as a forester, mm -hmm. was that an easy transition or is that really just hard work grinding it out you know basically doing an undergrad in the span of you know six months and then doing your graduate studies tell me more about that yeah it was kind of both and so like I think the other day I needed a copy of my transcript for some professional certification or another and it had been a while since I looked at it and I think I ended up doing 81 credit hours which wow. is like almost three times more than a normal master's but um so I definitely did that part too, like the kind of groundwork, like grind it out. But um, I also think it was easier because I had that work background. So um, it's a way, uh, it's just a pretty unique, like world-class research environment. Uh, did a bunch of data collection over the course of, I think it was five summers total. And um, I mean, over the years I've met a dozen people who did masters and PhDs with data I collected. You know, and eventually it was like, oh, yeah, like, even though I, I didn't know what I was, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing at the time. You know, I was, I was doing the same thing a lot of young foresters do, uh, really complex inventory, 
like I said, the biggest difference was probably that it wasn't, you know, prism plots. It was, uh, you know, like really complex, like stratified samples and permanent plot installations and uh, pretty similar actually to a lot of the plots that are being done with for carbon now. So that's kind of cool. A lot of my forestry colleagues are, are just now learning about some of those permanent plot designs that, you know, I was doing in the early 2000s. And um, so, yeah, definitely a bit of both and just tried to fill in gaps over the years mm -hmm. as I found them. Very cool. Very cool. So all, all I'm hearing is that you've, you've got to have like thousands of publications as co-author because they're all leveraging your data set, right? So you got you to gotta be a well-cited individual, right? You know, I got to... I need to get in, figure out how to get in that queue. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I don't think anybody's ever, ever uh, given me credit. I was just an hourly worker. You know, they probably gave Jonathan Sober credit, the my mentor I mentioned. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So genius on the mentor's part, right? <laughs> That's right. Trying to do this. And yeah, there we go. More exactly. pumps for me. I say that jokingly, of course. Very cool. So, so in terms of the career, so you went to study and then what happened? Then you finished, graduated from Auburn and then boom, straight into technical forester role, or was there a, a journey there? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, my, we were pretty tied to one spot because of my wife's job when I came out of Auburn. And, you know, like any good grad student, I started kind of laying the groundwork like a year before graduation and trying to figure out where I would land. And all of the contacts that I had maintained, um, didn't have any open positions. It was like six months out from graduation and then two months out from graduation. And thankfully, about a month before graduation, I uh, was just making making a phone call, touching base with a friend. And I had brought up, you know, positions. And the way he worded it was, you know, we don't we don't need somebody full time right now. But man, I sure wish you could help us 10 hours a week. And all of a sudden I thought, huh. A couple other people have said that. And so um, I started piecing it together and doing the math in my head. And I was like, I think I've got a full-time schedule to start my own firm. And yeah, as soon as I graduated, uh, came out of school, started a forest service provider firm. Um, I think it was right at the seven month mark. I was able to hire one of my friends. I pieced together enough of a schedule for nice, two people. Nice. And uh, by the end, I actually had built up to a seven person firm, including myself. So, wow, I didn't know that. Very cool. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work. It was uh, yep. it was a grind. And there were definitely times <laughs> yep. where I was way in over my head and that's kind of why, like I always mentioned mentors, because they were just a handful of people that I just bugged so much, you know, um, just didn't hesitate to pick up the phone and say like, hey, you know, I don't I don't know how to do this. You know, should I take the project or or should I not? And more often than not, you know, my mentors would say, take the project. I'll help you work through it. And um, just did that over and over again. I was in business for right at four years and um, it had just got to a point in terms of work-life balance that um, not having family startup money and not having kind of like, a, you know, not having resources other than just constant bootstrapping in order to grow. 
I got to a point where I was like, okay, like I can either go and borrow an insane amount of money in order to grow to the next like economy of scale, or I can like stay at this, this awkward in between like seven people's is that's a pretty big firm for a forest service provider. And, uh, but not quite big enough for that. You know, you get into the 20, 30 forester company and, um, and you really get a good economy of scale. And I talked to my wife about it and I just decided, you know, that's, that would be really fun too. But I think what I really want to do is find a job that will allow me to stay more current with technology. So that's the tie-in for technology, actually. I, when I interviewed at FRC, I said, um, the one thing I miss about having my own company is I didn't get to try a lot of new technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, any any budget was coming straight out of my pocket. So like for that brief time, even though I've been a, an ARC user since 2004, during that four years, I was, uh, you know, open source GIS, you know, I switched to, switched to QGIS, which I, you know, I love, but Oh, I didn't know that. That's it. I can't talk to you anymore. This podcast has to end. Oh, that's it. I'm just that's joking. Right. But it, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of just a practical thing. And um, but not just on the GIS front, because uh, obviously QGIS has a lot of a lot of great cutting edge features. But even things like like Woodstock and like harvest scheduling, um, growth and yield, like every time. I needed a new technology. I, I had to like hunt down the open source version or, you know, it was always a value proposition. Like what's mm-hmm. the cheap version. And it just got to a point where it was almost like personal technological debt, you know, like yeah. I'm being left behind, even though, like I said earlier, I used to go to computer camp. I love, I love technology. And so, yeah, the timing worked out. FRC was, um, kind of in the infancy of its its digital transformation at the time. So I was brought on technical service forester um, and was given a chance to totally rebuild the GIS like from the ground up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very a lot cool. of the planning for that, you know, it was it was just me for a while. And then we found some really good contractors to help us along the way, as you well know. And uh, <laughs> just been been piecing it together. Well, before we talk about the GIS side, because I have a few, and of course, I know you're involved with all sorts of other technologies, you know, yeah. you're, you're reading. And again, uh, yeah. didn't necessarily appreciate the entrepreneur background, but now I get it. Uh, you know, I talked with you, I'm like, oh, he's being there, you know, yeah. um, maybe for this, it's a first maybe pod where we've heard a little bit more about that open source side. And mm-hmm. and we know forestry, foresters are cost conscious, that might be the most polite way of of putting right. it uh right uh yeah cost conscious we'll go with that how's that for yeah. everybody i bet Good you there's a lot of people term. uh snickering or on the ground laughing but open source tell uh, like what 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 do you see on the landscape you know having used it you know as a firm of seven totally hear you scale matters yeah. some companies just don't deal with the seven they deal with the 20 the 30 by default but thinking about that open source thing what are your thoughts on that is this something is there a current change like a change in currents where there's more open source or do you think it's kind of still the same that yeah there's some new capabilities but still that investment in, from the community isn't quite there yet to to compete with an esri or, or whatever commercial technology right but what are your thoughts on that because i know a lot of our forces are using open source technology simply for the reason because they're free 
Yeah. And yeah. they do stuff. But when we go to enterprise and the word you invoke digital transformation, maybe there's some gaps that uh, maybe mm-hmm. they're on the product roadmap, but they're not quite there yet. But having been a user of open source, like wh- what do you think? Like given where you are now, do you think, you know, forcers really should continue embracing that or, or do they have a certain space of use or what are your thoughts on open source GIS and forestry applications? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I have been asked that several times just because I'm the change agent asking for asking for a budget for GIS stuff. And every once in a while, someone will say, well, why don't we use open source this, open source that? So I, I kind of feel like the answer to that question is like a, like a storyline, like a narrative arc, because to, to my mind, like 10 years ago, there were, there were probably more people talking about it because there was like this, this short-lived, thankfully, um, trend of people who wanted to like break out of the Esri ecosystem. And everyone, it's almost like everyone was trying to find a workaround to keep from paying Esri. And, you know, a lot of people found great workarounds and a lot of people built alternative um, systems for different uses that all work. But now that it's like a decade on, they've all entered like a maintenance phase. They've had some staff turnover and a lot of their clients and like people that are using these tools are realizing, oh, like if we go the custom off the shelf Esri universe route, we can hire someone right out of school who may not have used our flavor of this tool, but they they're able to just jump right in. And so to me, I think it's about return on investment. And like in a seven person firm, the return on investment for Esri licensure is it's a tough case to make, you know, because the mapping and, and spatial analysis isn't central to what you're doing at that scale, because it's a small enough scale that the questions don't necessarily require complex answers, right? And then the bigger you get, the bigger the questions become and you start needing to do some some uh, like remote sensing or spatial analysis or like you start adding to that stack. And if you try to build your own stuff for that, you're just kind of reinventing the wheel, you know, like Esri's been so responsive over the years to um, the needs of, of forestry companies and foresters. I think they've just built a lot of really great tools that with yeah. slight modification work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely when we think about that is I, I've got pulled in the debates of that nature and I'm sure you have just by like open sources Esri. And I don't really think it's about, you know, open source versus Esri versus just in some people, they just have a hate on for Esri for whatever uh, reason and to each their own type of thing. But mm-hmm. but uh, I often think of it as, you know, what problem am I trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Then what is the best technology that I can use for solving that versus, you know, is it an open source versus an Esri? Or, you know, there's tons of other commercial GIS offers out there uh, as yeah. well. So, so yeah, definitely interesting. I agree. At the end of the day, if you got a load of shapefile and make one edit in the table and then yeah. Uh, export, like, yeah, I totally hear you. It's like run QGIS or something. But uh, just as you said, you know, the seven person firm evolves to something bigger, you know, mm-hmm. just as people, foresters, you know, their needs evolve. And at some point in time, you know, 
arguably you you didn't go to code camp and you don't have those skills to script yeah. and do that right so you're kind of stuck and, and yeah. need to move forward so definitely interesting on that front so i i, I want to delve into your enterprise gis space first before we go you know wider technology um i'm giggling you're giggling uh, what are some <laughs> of the common i don't want to say myths but maybe obstacles or or things you've run into especially you know coming from that open source background and then people of different vintages exposed to different technologies and again there's no right or wrong if it does the job for you then great but at the same yeah. time if it doesn't do the job for you then really don't fight change and like trust right. the experts or, or or set up a skunk works lab and try different things but what was FRC like before you joined? You mentioned in the intro, you, you got brought in to help with that digital transformation. So maybe for our listeners who arguably might be in a similar position or are contemplating these things, mm -hmm. what did FRC look like before you came in in terms of technologies and what they're doing? Mm -hmm. And then we'll dive into like, what it, where's the direction you're going uh, now? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think FRC was in a similar position to a lot of other consulting firms. Like I've got, I've got friends at a lot of the other large firms um, who there was so, there was so much early investment into GIS, like before, you know, any company our size, like was even thinking about spending money on GIS, right? Uh, like FRC has got like a hundred employees. Um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, a company with 100 employees wasn't thinking about GIS. You know, back then it was like fairly large organizations. Um, so FRC was very much ahead of the curve then. They jumped in and, and they went in full bore. Uh, there was a strong recognition that just by default, almost all forestry data is spatial. And so you need to have a system that can integrate the, the spatial and, and attribute data in a way that meets the forestry use case. And, you know, they spent decades building and honing all of these like legacy workflows. Um, and there was so much connection to like, this system is working. Why should we change it? Um, that it was, it was kind of, there was some inertia there, right? And so I think it was Scott McQueen, it may have even actually been on this podcast, said the other day that uh, you only call it a legacy system if it still works, right? Like yep, if it's broken, Scott. Yep. yeah. Like if it's broken, you know, you just call it our old broken system. And so I, I really liked that quote because it resonated a lot with my experience here. You know, it's like you come in and you're like, hey, like, yeah, this system works great, but we've kind of built up some technological debt. We've, we've gotten to a point where there are, are sections of this system that are maybe gone off into a cul-de-sac or a dead end that need to be reined in. And there needs to be some sort of strategic thinking about those systems, but also geospatial strategy and, and what those business lines look like going forward. Um, yeah, so does that, I guess the original question was, what did the system look like? Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, no, it sounds it, it sound like I, I know you guys are in Esri shop, right? And have used mm-hmm. that techno, so personal geo databases, right? Yeah. Shape yeah. files, those types of things. Yeah. Um, which still even ironically now in a lot of big cloud projects, the the data exchange formats a CSV, which always makes me like giggle, right? It's like, yeah, it's yeah. like I got a data lake and then how are we going to get the CSV into the data lake and out as yeah. a CSV? I'm like, really, we're still doing CSV, but to your point, legacy there. Um, so definitely interesting from that point of view. And, and what do you think was that moment within FRC where they, was there a trigger event or something that, that, that then said like, oh, it's like, we really need to, to, I don't know if pivot's the right word, but maybe mm-hmm. take a step back and look at what we're doing and see if there's a better way. Was there such a moment within within yeah, your firm? Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, I mean, we've all we've all seen this like over the past two years. One of the huge drivers of WebGIS in particular, which is the route we've decided to go, um, is COVID dashboards, right? Like Johns Hopkins, like everybody was sharing that. Everybody was saying like, from GIS professional to GIS professional, everybody was like, whoa, like I had no idea you could do this much with ARC Online and, and, uh, and with spatial data sources. So we had several kind of key strategic clients reach out to us and, and ask, hey, you know, is there a way we could get my Timberland data in here? And it happened to coincide with our strategic planning period. Um, every few years uh, from top to bottom, uh, at FRC, they go through a, they've gone through a, a process of, you know, what does the future look like? How do we keep growing? How do we keep providing value to clients? Um, so they had asked me to be on the business development side of that around the same time that we started having clients ask about all these things. And I, I just had to tell them, you know, in our legacy system, anything we provide on that front is going to be pretty inefficient, like from a workflow standpoint, like we can do it, but, you know, there are going to be five extra steps and some data conversion and and some additional quality checks just to make sure that moving that much data around, you're not breaking things. So that got the conversation started about like, well, what system do we need in order to feed all these products and kind of what's the current gold standard and the ball just started rolling from there and here we are a couple years on. Yeah. Interesting. So, so maybe for some of our listeners and, and viewers for that matter that are at that crossroads, because my gut feeling is as, as I think of the U S market in particular, you know, tier ones being larger companies, tier two, and then tier three, tier three is being more of the mom and pop. We know at the tier three level, there's a lot of just still spreadsheet, like not even open source GIS happening mm-hmm. um, per se, but thinking of some groups saying that tier, tier, tier one that are contemplating this, uh, this change, because I suspect a lot of them are in a similar boat, different uh, different ends in terms of their their journey. Are, is there something that when you're thinking about a uh, pro tip you would give another organization, because you're still in the midst of doing this, but obviously, you know, thought it through, you have a plan. Mm-hmm. Is there something that in hindsight, when you look at that decision point that you would give them and say, hey, it's like, if I just knew this, or maybe think about that, is there something that you would share uh, with your peers on that front? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that your question was kind of more in reference to like the tier two, but I'm, I'm going to back up a bit and talk about the tier three people, because I think they actually have more of an opportunity, right? Like um, you have systems being built by companies such as you guys, like like Stratus, I think is a great system for 
the person who is doing really good forestry. You know, like I've got friends who are some of the best foresters I know, but their maps are made with Google Earth Pro, you know, like they're not, they effectively do no GIS work, which sounds like they're really far behind until you realize that that means that they don't have a data model that they have to cram into a different mold. They don't, for them, it's not a digital transformation. It's like a digital birth, you know, it's, it's just a lot easier process. So what I've been telling those guys is like, you know, you're, a lot of them are older. It's like, you're going to retire soon. Like you want to get, you know, this person to take over your business. You want to, you want to transition to the next like leadership in your company. I think for those people, it's an exciting time because it's, it's more of a, you know, here's my data, show me how it works in your system instead of, you know, at the higher tiers, the business rules that have built up over decades of points on GIS, yep. like those business rules are the, the really difficult part. Yeah. Um, at the tier two level, I think the best advice I could give would be um, read up on geospatial strategy. So uh, <laughs> I've, I've read everything. There's this guy at uh, Esri Canada named Matthew Lewin. And at this point, I, th- I think I've literally read everything that he's written. I think he's, they're just doing such great work up there on how to affect change and, and plan for the future of a GIS in a way that isn't solely systems focused. Like, I think people often want to treat, even at, at large, medium and large size organizations, people want to treat um, GIS like it's an app that they install. And when they're done installing it, like, boom, we're done. We've, we've got a, we've achieved enterprise rather than like a, the way we would treat any other business line where you have to develop the use case, you know, figure out what problem it's trying to solve, uh, figure out the most efficient way to solve it and then build your systems out. Right. Right. Um, I think that was, if I had it to do ever again, I would have started on the geospatial strategy side, but because initially my role in the GIS restructure was so informal at FRC, initially it was just, you know, you get an email from one of your board members and they have a question and you answer it and you go back to client work. Um, I think if I had it to just completely start over again, I would have started with what's the overall strategy first? And then what are the systems? Like um, we had, we just had a couple dead ends before we landed on the solutions that we've chosen to go with. I think those dead ends would have been avoided if we had built the case for the investment before right. we started building the system. Right. Um, and sometimes you need to hit the dead ends, right. To get to that, that, yeah. that conclusion, but, but obviously preferably a, if we're the ones you can avoid would be would yeah. be beneficial. So what what I'm I'm dying to know now. So FRC, like you're you're pushing more into the Esri space, right? So at, at one point in time, was there ever a consideration to go a different route? Or even as you guys were looking at building out your your forest management system, looking at different mm-hmm. options, 
what were some of those key things? Because it's funny you mentioned like, you know, the dashboards, right? And, and we chatted where nowadays it's like, you know, back in the day you talk to a forester and like, you know, my solution can auto import this, auto sync and generate this report in 57 different shades of pink. And it's like, awesome. And then now it's like, do you want my solution? Like, what's going to, what's it going to take to get over the, the line and get a yes? It's, can you show a dashboard on my smartphone? Yeah. Right. Like, like that's what it's boiled down to. And it's kind of like yeah. almost mind blowing, but it's like, Oh my God, that's, and I kid you not, most of our discussions now, it comes back to that thing we have in our pocket where it's, if it doesn't work mm -hmm. on this or my tablet, like we're not even talking to you anymore because by default you're in the legacy camp. Yeah. All right. And interesting. But so in terms of FRCs, in terms of your selection, how did you go about researching, honing that, uh, and then coming to your final decision and, and thinking of that change management, you kind of touched on it. Mm -hmm. The people component, I suspect, you know, no matter how sophisticated your organization is, there's always people. And by default, there's different views and different yeah. approaches of doing things. How, how did yeah. you, how did you stick out of that within FRC? Um, I think to begin with, it was just exploring that, that change management is its own standalone discipline. You know, like I don't I don't think I had realized that, you know, three years ago and then, you know, humanities undergrad. Right. Like once I've got the domain of knowledge or the vocab or like then I have something that I can research. And so I think literally just the discipline of change management is kind of what got that stuff started um, through that. I discovered all of Esri's knowledge base on um geospatial strategy there the vendor question is is a kind of a whole a separate thing i'm really big on open source intelligence and networking and just talking to people i mean you know because i feel like that's how that's how our conversation got started i just reached out and started the conversation um so far, at least in my experience, uh, forestry as a whole, GIS within forestry, GIS outside of forestry, like you have all these communities where people actually really like to talk about what they're doing. And, you know, there, there's always an aspect of every conversation where the person can't say exactly what they're working on, but um, they can, you can at least talk about it in general enough ways that you both come away smarter for it. Um, you know, we, on the forest management side, the forest information system side, uh, there are a couple alternatives that, you know, came up on our radar and we just figured out who's using it and talked to whoever's using it. I think that's a really good way to eliminate some options. You know, like it's, people are pretty quick to tell you like, oh, we went down this route. You really don't want to go down this route. Um, and, and typically those are the conversations where they will tell you everything, you know, they're, they're just so dis, if you find someone who's dissatisfied with the solution, uh, right. they're, they're going to give you the nitty gritty. And you need even um, have to buy them a beer yet for them to get going, right? Exactly. Give them the exactly. beer. It's like turbocharged. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so uh, to find the solutions that work, I think sometimes people hold that a little, a little bit closer to their chest, but um, I mean, Personally, I'm of the belief that if a solution works, I, I don't mind if everybody uses it. 
you know what I mean? Like, um, I've had that conversation before with with uh, GIS people at competitors, and you know, everybody was kind of being coy and goofing off, and and I'm I'm just like, you know, I'll be happy to tell you what we're doing because I think that we're able to compete on other things, and like we have other value adds, like we're all like consulting firms or whatever type of forestry firm that has multi-layer value at the systems level. I think if everybody could get to a point where um, all of our data was more integrated, then it would just level the playing field. And the reason I'm a consultant, the reason I went into consulting forestry is at the end of the day, I care most about the landowner. Um, providing value to forest landowners. And I think long-term, just creating a healthy forest tech ecosystem is the way to provide that value. Right. So because right. of that, like once, if that's the context for a conversation, then I think it's really easy to have collaboration amongst, even amongst competitors. Right, for sure. Well, that that the community is ever so important, just mm-hmm. as you said, you know, word of mouth, referrals, yeah. Um, you know, they speak volumes type of thing. So with the digital forester, we always like to get into technology. So we kind of spent a bit of time talking about maybe at a higher level, 50,000 foot level, some things, and obviously you're deploying Esri technology. So and, and we've had tons of speakers talk about that. And we don't want to go in the weeds of, you know, like how many end tier architecture you're doing. And, you know, is there a web application firewall here? Because then you and I will both hit our screens uh, and fall asleep there. But thinking of technology as a whole, again, it's like, you know, I'm hearing you read a lot, you're studying and, and playing, you know, the chessboard in your head and, and, and how technology can help. But what are some of those technologies that you're using today? Because again, from a cruising point of view, you've got technology there, et cetera. And then it's coming into your, your enterprise GIS and doing different things. But maybe for our listeners, like bring us down maybe to the 10,000 foot level and, and share just to your comment earlier, sharing about some of the things as a community, what are some of those technologies you're using so our listeners can benchmark and go, oh, they're using this, they're using that, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. On the cruise front, like we have a in-house system that we like paid to have custom built and it, it actually works great. Um, I think the, the biggest issue is like long-term support, you know, like if a third-party contractor, if you have the only forest inventory system that they've ever built you know if you come back to them five years later and say hey we need to add a feature you're basically going to have to start from scratch because the likelihood that the person who built it's still there and still remembers the context uh but that's actually built out in in claris or filemaker um and you know it's got its pros and cons but in general our cruisers our contract cruisers uh everybody seems happy with it um, I would like to see us go more in a direction of, you know, custom off the shelf. Um, uh, for instance, you know, you, you can't plug it, but I can, um, you know, I, I would like to see us move towards prism, but it's a matter of like building the use case from a system that we have that the cost was all up front towards, you know, having that cost be spread out over time. Um, having not used Prism, but having used a, a custom solution you built previously for, for another company, uh, it just works. Um, and I think companies like yourself that, that specialize in forest technology, like you're going to be around a while. Um, to my mind, 
that's the direction I would like to head us in is, you know, um, less custom, more custom off the shelf from actual forest technology companies. Uh, everything else is pretty much already custom off the shelf Esri. It's just um, dated to varying degrees. Like we have the legacy portions of our system that um, we've still got some workflows that are in Microsoft Access because of personal geodatabases. So we're trying to, to wean ourselves off of those. Um, but, it, you know, you don't call it legacy if it doesn't work. They're still working great. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's the a right right time. There's a right time to make those uh, yeah. transitions there. And I'm sure some of our listeners are like, hey, you too. It's like, we're still yeah. doing that, right? So even though some other maybe people listening from other sectors might go like personal geodatabase, like MS access database, like like seriously, it's like 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 in our world, it's like, you know, sometimes if it works and ain't broken, you don't yeah. need to fix it quite yet. But there's other reasons to to make that. Yeah that that plunge per se but yeah so what are some other technologies are there any, are you guys flying drones are you doing remote sensing or are you doing secret stealth can't tell you guys code word yeah. project yeah share some thoughts. there's a little of that there's a little of that so i mean i think the specifics looking forward are all things that i still have to be kind of like mom about the specifics um but yeah i think you know every who isn't at least trying to figure out how to incorporate more drones, more remote sensing. Um, you know, we, we've experimented with a lot of things. We're kind of still in that for field workflows. We're still in the see what's fixed mode. Um, so there, there's one company in particular, we're trying to put together a pilot with that if that worked out, I think that would be a game changer, um, more in like the drone space. Uh, on the the remote sensing front, you know, nothing fancy. Like we're not looking at AI. We're not we're not looking at um, at super intense workflows at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's mostly just trying to leverage the movement in satellite imagery and remote sensing of just cost rapidly plummeting, right? I mean, like the cost went down so quickly that if you're not exploring it, why, you know? Um, so we're definitely in the camp of those companies. I think some companies already had enough remote sensing expertise in-house that as soon as the price went down, they already had like operable workflows. For the most part, we're still ad hoc on that. Like. Right. Uh, each GIS specialist is kind of exploring their own data sources and it's more of a, a siloed type thing, but we are trying to move it, move it yeah. out of that. Yeah, very cool. Well, it's amazing to hear that because again, you're thinking like a, a forestry consulting company, right? Leveraging earth observation, drones technology. And I still think back to a, an SAF, a Society of American Forestry event. I think Steve Weiland, uh, their editor had to, and I don't know if you were there, he had to talk about what the future, I think it might have been Columbia, but he had like the, you know, the F-150 truck roll in and then on the back, there was a drone, you know, and the force that came out and right away the drone kind of lifted off and then went to do some recon from the air. Yeah. And by the time, you know, you're pulling your boots on, right, the data was already on your tablet. And then it's kind of funny to watch, but at the same time, it was like, 
I, I was thinking it's like that's we're not really not that far off depending where we are. And so one thing I wanted to to kind of get your thoughts on is is a lot of listeners may not know this, but there's always this joke when you're in the U.S. Southeast, it's like you're farming, like forestry is like farming. And so maybe for context, yeah. share why people say that about the U.S. Southeast. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest differences is because we like our silviculture down here really is basically tree farms, you know, I mean, it's, it's honed to such an extent from an efficiency standpoint that uh, it's basically an ag crop with a 20 year rotation instead of a, a one year rotation. And um, yeah, I think a lot of the developments in precision ag, I think are going to spill pretty quickly into Southeastern forestry. Uh, they just haven't yet. You know, it's from a change management standpoint, every forestry organization has to kind of find that return on investment. There's some things where they've made it work and some where they haven't. But drones, especially the way you just described, um, to me, the key to success with drones is every field forester has to have one in their truck. Like over the years, I've had colleagues that are like, well, what if we just had this team of like four or five pilots? It's like, no, like it's got to be scaled. Like if, if you have to have a drone specialist drive to that stand separately uh, from the actual field forester, it's like, well, there goes all of your cost savings, right? Yeah. Uh, so what I see happening is more like enterprise scale drone solutions. Um, like there, there are a couple of our competitors in particular that when I do my open source intelligence, kind of read up on what they're doing. I'm like, that's actually really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a, a push towards every forester having a drone in their truck. I think once that happens, our profession will be advanced. You know, I, I think it's just going to drive a lot of innovation. Um, having the pipeline for that data is a big thing. I, I've seen some companies who assign drones, but every forester is just kind of like looking at it on their iPad and then that file gets emailed to somebody or, you know, it's like, there's, it's all still just siloed data. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even to that point, it may not just be one drone, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. multiple uh, in the toolkit that all go off yeah. and do their own thing. Right. Who knows? So, so that's a good segue thinking of the time we have, it's like, you know, I always love to ask people from that technical background, like that one year, three-year, five-year, 10-year, whatever horizon. We, we, you kind of alluded to like short-term where you're seeing the value of uh, drones. And again, that should be no surprise to any of our listeners, viewers, just watching the landscape. There's, um, you know, people in the news, um, you know, planting using drones, you know, uh, doing mensuration work or cruising via drones. Like, like it's, it's kind of all over the place. And truthfully, on our side, uh, you know, the only reason we're not as active is, is because, if, if you can go to Best Buy or whatever staples and buy that drone, then it wasn't really our unique value proposition space mm-hmm. there, but, but exciting nonetheless. But based on your readings and the seat you're in as a technical forester, share some thoughts on what maybe three, or I won't push you out to 10, but maybe that three to five range type of thing. Like, what are some of the key things you're seeing, at least for the U.S. Southeast there? Because, again, geography matters. Some yeah. technologies that are applicable, like in Canada, as an example, probably mm-hmm. may not make sense in the U.S. Southeast. Labor costs are lower type of thing. It's not as hilly and mountainous per se. 
but take us out five years out. flash forward. It's like, you know, now you've grown that, that entrepreneur firm within FRC. You're now like that 20 Brandon's leaving a team at 20, like beat your chest. And then like five years out, what, what is What does that look like? What, what does that technology yeah. stack suite of tools look like from, from, from your open source scans and, and you're thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, I think I will like back up just real quick to the one year. I think at the one year level, one of the things that surprised me recently, just really doing a deep dive on the drone sector is I think we're one year out from some really powerful mensuration tools, uh, drone based like force measurements. Um, I think there are already existing like drone enhanced cruises that are far enough along as to be operable in the Southeast, especially uh, where you've just got more uniform stands. Um, I mean, one company that excites me in that regard is Tree Swift. Man, like every time I hear anybody from Tree Swift talk or look at any of their demos, I've, I've talked to them quite a bit. Uh, their technology's there and uh, I'm excited to see what they do. Three years out, um, especially on the drone front, I see more like payload stuff coming into play. So observation is one thing where you've got like a reasonably sized drone that maybe just has a suite of sensors. Um, if you had asked me a year ago, how long it would be before we were using drones for site prep, like I was, I was pretty skeptical about any, any drone based work that required a heavy payload until the past year. Like I've started to see some pretty cool experimentation with uh, like herbicide, um, we don't do any direct seeding in the Southeast, but I mean, in other regions where direct seeding is more of an option, like uh, reforestation with seeds from drones seems like it's easily within the three-year timeline. Um, on the earth observation front, I think what excites me most on the three-year timeline is SAR, like just looking at the rapid increase in synthetic aperture radar, uh, how quickly the sensors are able to get really good data from really far away. And looking at several of the Earth observation companies experimenting in that direction, I think within a few years, we will be getting really good satellite-based um, 3D data in a way that we're, we're not getting in a cost-effective way right now. And that excites me. I mean, I think road layout, um, best management practice, compliance, erosion control, a lot of the like ESG geared aspects of investment timberland, I think get a lot easier when you have 3D data. Um, and then once the technology is more precise, I think it starts to have ramifications for growth and yield, uh, feeding more data to biometricians in a way that that enhances our our modeling um i see that as a huge win yeah interesting so i'm, I'm gonna ask the um the taboo question and, and and now you're like oh god now he's gonna ask you today do you envision a world where there's no foresters boots on the ground i don't i don't actually oh, and here's here's why so i think i think that no matter how automated data collection becomes, there's still a, you know, silviculture is the art and science 
of, of uh, applying forest ecology and, and managing forests for human objectives. And there's always gonna be the art side of that. And there's always gonna be the human objectives side of that. Uh, say on the 10 year timeline, we said we weren't gonna talk about the 10 year timeline, but imagine on the 10 year, 10 year timeline where every data point that needs to happen can be collected by a drone that's off flying autonomously. Maybe it's because I'm a consummate networker and a people person, but I just imagine in that scenario, I'm still standing there talking to the landowner. You know, like it becomes, technology then becomes a tool that feeds um, the human side of the process. So you're still gonna always need to talk to the landowner to better understand what they want from their property. Um, I mean, even now as a, a technical forester, some of our clients that are real heavy on the data management side, I basically serve as the account manager and they'll call and they'll talk to me about family transitions and you know wanting to build a legacy for their kids. There's no data point for that. Like there's nothing that goes into our database, but it's like, it, it's what makes the job enjoyable for me but it's also what makes owning that land enjoyable for them, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and and yeah, so definitely I don't see a world where it's like, please press three to speak to <laughs> Kevin and four for Brandon. Like that would never work in the field of forestry. But, uh, but it was also a trick question because depend if you answered it the other way, then I'm sure your mentors would be calling you right after the release right. of this podcast and giving you a verbal beating or something of that uh, right. nature there. But no, that relationship side, I think is one that truthfully, a lot of people uh, underestimate uh, in forestry. And um, yeah, even, even as we think about technology innovation and and dissemination and um, exchange and whatnot, it's, it's definitely a key thing. So in the time that we have left together, thinking of the audience, and again, this is customary with, with the Digital Forester podcast, uh, wind us down in terms of what are some pro tips you would give them? Because I think you're in a unique spot. Like you're, you are boots on the ground. You are interacting with clients. You have, uh, and are still going through your digital transformation. And 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 maybe there might be a dead end here or there. But you're you're always learning, and like it's not holding you back, type of thing. Yeah. But at the same time, I know a lot of, and we know a lot of companies are still trying to to start and and not yeah. really sure how to get get going, type of thing. Um. So thinking of that and and your experiences, like. Is it really about learning that's the key thing? Or is it really about just taking the plunge, taking that first step forward? Or, or is it partnering? Like to your point over, uh, earlier, like the, the community, the forestry community, even though there's still similar business lines and there's competition, mm -hmm. there's still a, a strong sense of collaboration mm -hmm. um, within the community. So just thinking of that, um, as we wind down, what, what are those things, those best practices that branding craft is technical services forester would impart to his peers uh, because they're all listening. I mean, we're, we're special, right? <laughs> so they're all listening. This is going to go viral. What, what are those messages you would share with, with, with them as we, as we close? Yeah, I would say uh, if you're going to begin any transformation, uh, any forward looking strategy, read up on all the change management stuff first. The one thing that I learned about halfway through the process that I think would have helped the most. Like if nothing else could have changed except this one thing, it, it would have helped tremendously. 
is figure out who your executive sponsor is. I think the tendency, if you haven't thought through change management a lot, is to just assume it's your boss or even to assume it's your boss's boss. Like, you know, we tend to think very usefully so in a business context. We tend to think like sort of chain of command, whatever the org chart looks like. But I think one of the one of the things that I wouldn't have thought about before is sometimes you have to like kind of move laterally on the org chart and find the nerdiest decision maker in your company and and sell them on it, get them excited about it so that they go and talk to all the other decision makers and kind of help you build that coalition. Because if you're at the tactical level, um, you don't see everything, you know, like you're, you're doing the piece that you know how to do, but you, you got to find somebody who's at that strategic and organizational level who still sees value in whatever solution you're trying to build. Um, and, and they can help you hone your message in ways that you couldn't have on your own, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a great, great point. And, and it's kind of funny, you know, this podcast is about technology and time and time again, well, maybe not just exclusively technology, but how foresters are leveraging, but time and time again, there's this pattern where it's that people side, you know, the mm-hmm. leadership, you know, finding the right champion, you know, that executive sponsor mm-hmm. that you popped in that at times, you know, you and I have been to conferences where they talk about that and Maybe in our earlier days, it'd be like, yeah, whatever. It's like, blah, 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 jargon, like IT yeah. geek speak now. But now being in the seat, right, it, it kind of makes sense. It's so much easier. And in some respects, bringing the team together to instead of trying to go it alone, you know what I mean? It's like, it's so much more yeah. easier. You can accomplish uh, more. So, hey, man, this time is flying flown by together and, and, you know, it's already been an hour and, you know, the times we joke, like, how are we going to fill an hour? And I'm always like, no, 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 trust me. It's just a conversation. Like we'll go left, right, center, pull it together. I love the conversation. I love hearing that journey. Uh, you know, as I said, I've learned new things about you that I didn't know. And it all makes sense. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. There you go. So, so thanks for sharing that, uh, that, that journey, that story and the things you're, you're, you're working on. And, and I'll give the last word to you as we, as we wind down. Final words to you, my friend. Well, I mean, in the spirit of collaboration that I mentioned, I'm, I, I don't really ever speak to any group or do anything like this without saying, get in touch, reach out. Um, I'm really active on LinkedIn. I pretty much keep my email and my LinkedIn open all day. Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, even if I can't answer your question, I've I talk enough to enough people, I might be able to point you in the right direction. Um, yeah. And, and what's, and reason, what's your email, Brandon? Cause it's always an awkward question. It's kind of like, Oh, I want to reach out. And then like, but they never said the email. And then someone goes, yeah. my email is a little bit of that. And then people are like, what? Like slow motion. But Absolutely. what's your, what's your email for people to reach out? Yeah. Yeah. So my email is Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N dot craft, C-R-A-F-T at F-R-C email.com but I will add to that that LinkedIn is a way more reliable way to get in touch with me just because you know we've got barracuda and firewalls and sometimes I'll miss emails from people like one-off emails from people kind of take take a few days to get to me so if it's like in a professional context like this I say just reach out on LinkedIn there's no there's no firewall in my LinkedIn inbox so 
Yeah, it's a great point. So all those people that were about to launch the bots on Brandon's email, <laughs> right. it's not going to work. They're more mature with that, with their <laughs> IT provider. So, uh, right. so absolutely. LinkedIn, our email, Brandon Craft, uh, FRC, even keywords there, you'll find the man. So, hey, thanks so much for joining, sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate the time together. Looking forward to, I think you're going to be at the Esri User Conference uh, in the am. summer. So unless the world falls apart, I will see you there and looking forward to catching up over a soda pop with the community as a whole. So thanks again, my friend, exactly. for, for joining this and looking forward to seeing you in person soon. All right. Awesome. Good talking to you, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks.